Netaporte presents the Incredible Women Podcast, Series 3, The New Guard. Hi, I'm Kay Barron, Fashion Director at Netaporte, and welcome to this episode of the Incredible Woman Podcast, where I'm joined by Tavi Gevinson, actor, writer, editor, and cultural commentator, a bona fide millennial multi hyphenate. Tavi has already been in the public eye for over half her life. She started her fashion blog, Style Rookie, aged just 11, then launched Rookie as an online publication a few years later. Written for and mostly by teenage girls, it became a much-loved tool for her peers to navigate the pressures and complexities of early adulthood. She also has an impressive acting resume, which spans from standout performances on Broadway to the recent reboot of Gossip Girl, in which she starred as teacher Kate Keller. But it is the razor-sharp, thought-provoking pieces that she writes for global publications that really demonstrate Tavi's commitment to examining the experiences of women. Earlier this year, she published an essay titled Britney Spears Was Never in Control, which was a stark read on the treatment of young women in the entertainment industry, touching on her own traumatic experiences. In it, she writes that she tries to reach across time to give my younger self the language for what really went on. This sums up a unifying theme of Tavi's work, a dedication to empowering the voices of her generation. Hi, Tavi. Thank you so much for joining us on our Incredible Woman podcast. How are you today? I'm well. I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you and to be speaking to you because I've been following your career since the beginning. And going back to the early days of, I mean, obviously you came to public attention so early at just 11 what did you hope would happen with Style Rookie when you started that? And, and how do you remember your life changing after the launch? Oh, I would barely call it a launch. Like, my <laughs> memory is that I had, you know, I, like, created a blog spot and then changed the layout and the name a bunch over the course of a week or two weeks or something because no one was looking at it. I mean, it was just sitting on the on the Internet. But, you know, I read other fashion blogs and... My friend's older sister had one, and she is how I got into them. And she kind of sent me the ones that she read. So I was hoping to be part of the community. I was hoping to have readers, but it didn't really, to start with, they came through her blog because she wrote about me. But I remember at first being like, okay, I created it. And she was like, you have to like post things. (laughs) But yeah, she staged like a photo shoot of me and her little sister. And and I think that was how people first found mine. At what point do you remember kind of everything changing? From this side, it looked like it became very big very quickly. Well, at that point, there were fashion bloggers who like also had careers in the fashion industry. But it was before fashion bloggers were being written about. If I remember correctly, I think a lot of fashion publications were sort of hesitant to cover it. I mean, a lot of them were not even doing, like, online content yet. So I feel as though at first it was all sort of within the fashion blogging community where other young women mostly, they started writing about what I was doing, mostly just being like, oh, my God, she's so young. And I, you know, would be really excited to see any connection made um, and was kind of forming these online friendships with a lot of other bloggers. But I think it was probably 
a year before it went outside of the blogosphere. Okay, if I started it March 2008, that summer, the New York Times wrote about it. So actually, yeah, it started around then. Quite a quick jump from at home to New York Times. Really wild. I also was quite embarrassed by it, so I didn't tell my parents about it. And I had a, <laughs> a feeling that it was like not cyber safe or something. So I didn't tell my parents about it until the New York Times request came in. And then I was like, I have a fashion blog and this writer is writing an article about young bloggers and can I be in it? What was their reaction to that? They thought I was joking at first. I mean, it was so bizarre. But then, you know, they were very supportive. You've then had to live your your life in the public gaze from the age of 11. What did you learn from that? It's been sort of compartmentalized because it wasn't really something where I would go outside my house and my life would be any different than normal, you know? I went to school every day and kind of entered this online world when I got home. Um, I didn't even have a, a smartphone yet, so it was really like, unless I was sitting at my desk... It didn't feel real. Or eventually when I started going on these trips to go to Fashion Week or do a magazine feature, you know, then it would be this kind of whirlwind of a, a few days of a lot of stimulation. And then going back to math class and being like, I don't know if anyone here even knows about it, which was how I wanted to keep it because I was really embarrassed when people would be like, my mom read an article about you. And obviously having an online presence comes with a lot of calculus around what it means to have an audience and what I am willing to share or what have you. And that's just evolved a lot over the years. And now I think it's just so much more common for people to have an online presence than it was back then. Obviously, people used the internet back then. But this was before Instagram. This was early days of Twitter. So social media was not quite what it is now. Now I think it's a more sort of fluid part of a lot of people's lives. Definitely. I mean, you were a trailblazer in that way, and now everyone's kind of expected to be on social media rather than not to be. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> you shifted your focus away from, from fashion when you launched Rookie as an online publication. But what at the time made you feel that it was essential to have content focused on and I think crucially created by teenage girls and how did you set about making it different from other media aimed at young women? I was looking at a few different examples to follow honestly. I was looking at other fashion bloggers who you know were creating fashion content that I thought was a lot more interesting than things that were available to me um, in you know the magazines I could buy at CVS or whatever there was Tumblr where a lot of teenagers w were sharing their candid thoughts and opinions and, you know, bringing feminist analysis to pop culture. Like I was reading, you know, Jezebel and Tiger Beatdown and th the feminist blogosphere was also kind of connecting some of those dots for me. There were zines and once I expressed an interest on my blog in Riot Girl and the zine culture of the 90s, lots of people just started like asking if they could send me stuff they had from back then. And I think it was through a blog that I learned about Sassy Magazine of the late 80s and early 90s, which was a teen magazine that, you know, even though it was, I don't know, 20 years old, the tone was so fresh to me. The voice was so 
palpable and kind of reminded me of the voiciness of the internet. But these were like magazine writers, you know. And I really loved that along with the more overt feminist politics in the magazine. So these were all the sorts of models for it. I mean, I think it's also that when I first got interested in fashion, you know, I was a kid and it was so... Like, I wasn't trying to relate to any fashion magazine I read. Like, that would be crazy. Like, I didn't have money to spend on those kinds of clothes, and I was a kid. So it could all kind of be fantasy. And then I think once I started high school, I wanted something to relate to. And I wanted a more kind of centralized community for these different voices I was reading online and in conversation with. What did it feel like to be offering the support, advice and a platform to other teenagers when you were obviously a teenager yourself? And obviously you're getting support from from the internet, but who else were you were you looking at for advice for yourself too? Yeah, so we had a team of editors. A lot of that came together just from me writing on my blog that I wanted to start a sassy-esque online teen magazine. And then various people who already worked in media uh, reached out to me. And I was, you know, in that school during the days, I had no concept of what normal, like, office hours were because I would come home and just kind of be on my computer late into the night, top editing pieces and art directing things and sending people mood boards. And, but, you know, it was really our our team of editors who were holding down the fort day to day. And then my dad is the one who was kind of making sure everyone was a, a normal person. And just when all of this was getting set up, he and I had meetings with different media companies that had reached out that wanted to own it. We got advice from Ira Glass, whose wife at the time, Anahita Lani, had reached out to me and became one of our editors, and he really urged us to not let anyone own it. We'd have a lot more power and control if we didn't go that route, even though those companies would have, like, funded it. No, and I think that's the time when you do need those people around you to and giving you excellent advice on it, too. But now you're back working with teenagers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on, that's right. On Gossip Girl. Did you watch the original? Yeah, I did. I wasn't a a religious viewer. I have memories of, like, it being on the TV while I was on the computer. And then I went back in quarantine and, you know, dug in. But I was also sort of told, like, our version is so different. It's building on the past one in a kind of high-concept way. But our showrunner was like, watch it if it's helpful. Don't worry about it if it's not. But I just am so into the world of it, so I enjoyed it. And what was it about it that made you want to be involved? Well, when I first learned that Josh Safran, our showrunner, was interested in me for it, just the words Gossip Girl reboot were, like, sparkly and and fun, (laughs) even though he doesn't call it a reboot. And then when I was told what the catch was, which is I play a teacher, and I don't know, spoiler alert, but this is in the first episode, the teachers start a new Gossip Girl as a way of kind of uh, holding the students (laughs) accountable for their bad behavior. And when I heard that that was kind of the take, I was even more excited because I thought it was just such a clever way of bringing it back and also speaking to a lot of the things I'm interested in, like social media and cancel culture. And 
It's so funny because when I was a teenager, I felt I <laughs> interacted with a lot of like adults who hated teens online, you know, whether it was in blogging or through Rookie or just being aware of, okay, you sometimes I guess it is a thing for <laughs> adults to hate teenagers. And so it's really fun to now play <laughs> an adult who both kind of disapproves of these wealthy, privileged teens and their lifestyles and also really wants their approval. And I also relate to that in ways now myself. So I really love that that dynamic. Um, you know, well, it's about taking the power back, isn't it? Isn't it? Even if it's just about picking your outfit for the, your first day of school. I mean, obviously, you've been you've been acting for for some time now. But is there anything you get out of acting that you don't get from your many other creative pursuits? Oh, totally, definitely. When I'm in a play, that's such a happy place for me. I love doing the same thing every day, and I love the routine, and I love the kind of culture backstage. And being on set, like, I just really love being around people. And I'm really happy when I that I get to go to work and socialize so much. And I also just find shooting this show to be really fun because it is really basically every scene the teachers have to do. The stakes are really high and they're all losing their minds. And, I mean, I, I need to write frequently, but... It's definitely lonely compared to being on set around people and being able to just kind of surrender to, you know, I'm part of this bigger story. It's a character. It's not me. I take direction. Um, I, I love to be a, a dutiful cog um, in a in a play or a show like this. So, yeah, it's a it's a very happy place for me. I think our, everyone's world got so small, didn't they, over the last year and a half? To, so then to be able to go back out and and work with a big group of people must have felt quite incredible. And in such a weird simulation of New York, too, while everything was still shut down, like shooting on location or in museums that I hadn't been in in over a year, it was all very surreal. Going back to, to what you were saying earlier about the response you would get online from adults and other people, we know that, you know, a peril of raising your head above the parapet and, and expressing opinions in public and I think particularly as a woman, is the, the trolling that is rife on their social media. Mm -hmm. How have you found ways of coping with that? Can you shut out the noise? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something I've had to just develop tools for dealing with over the years. I think getting older is wonderful. I think when I was younger, I just kind of automatically assumed, I mean, at the same time that I was like, rookie is by teens and adults don't know everything and they can be really out of touch. I also kind of, you know, if someone was older than me, I, I assume they knew a bunch of stuff that I don't. And it was easy to just kind of absorb a lot of that commentary uh, without questioning it. I remember my mom saying something to me early on. She was like, everyone just wants to be heard and the easiest way to be heard is to be negative and I just sort of try to humanize those kinds of responses as much as possible and imagine like a person writing behind a computer. And that's more about trolling than like genuine negative but helpful critical feedback. But also at this point with the show, I think to be in something like that or even to write an article, you have to accept that to some extent you are an abstraction to people. 
I mean, not you, but that there is this kind of abstraction version of yourself that exists and you can't control how much people are interested. You can't control what exactly they read or hear. And that's really not the the point, you know, like the point of making things that are intended for an audience is not to be liked. That's boring. So I think I I kind of try to block out things that are not helpful because it can, you know, make me in my head while I'm shooting or trying to write or something. But I'm also kind of, I hope, healthily detached from it. It's sort of like when I see a movie with friends who I really respect and really love and think are really smart, and then we all have different opinions about it. It's just, of course, if this many people who I usually generally agree with can be in disagreement about the same thing, of course, thousands of people will feel thousands of different ways about an article or the Gossip Girl pilot or or whatever. So it's just kind of, it comes with the territory. It makes sense to listen to the voices you respect or that teach you something, but it's the ones, as, as you're Mum said, there are people who hide behind the internet but will use it to just fire negativity at people. And, you know, and I certainly I think from when you were 11 till now, you've, you know, you've never hidden. Your essay for, for The Cut earlier this year was incredibly thought-provoking, personal read and very brave, in which you shone a light on the harsh and harmful treatment that young women and especially young women in the public eye are subject to. What needs to change in how we portray young women in the spotlight? Do you think things have changed at all since your career started? The thing that I wrote was in response in part to the New York Times Britney Spears documentary that came out earlier this year, Framing Britney Spears. And I don't know, I guess I feel like a lot of what I was seeing in my echo chamber was people being like, oh my God, this kind of treatment by the media would never fly now. We've come so far. And in a lot of ways we have, and, you know, it's in part because girls who grew up then are women now who work in media, and, you know, there are simply more people who are thoughtful about, you know, different ways that you can be harmful when you cover young women in the spotlight. I guess I I don't think anyone really has true agency. Like, I don't think it's necessarily aspirational to pretend that women or anyone live in a world where we do have perfect control or power, which is what my piece was about. But I think you can be realistic about the world we exist in. When we cover people in the media, stories about individuals are so much more exciting than stories about systems or patriarchy or racism or any of the you know, things that actually create the sort of scaffolding where something like the Britney Spears conservatorship can be possible. I just think we're so eager to pin everything on individual people. Because mm. I think people like to give issues a face, don't they? Yes, exactly. I mean, it's a very human impulse. Like, it's why theater is an ancient art form that's persisted for so long. We like to see representations of conflict on stage somehow. And these things can make for really good teaching moments. And, you know, obviously I think accountability is important. But I also am so 
allergic to the impulse to be like, those are the bad people over there and we are the good people. Also, people are desperately looking for people who are kind of leading change. And, you know, from everything I've followed within your in your career, you have now this kind of complicated mantle of being held up as a voice of empowerment, which is quite a, a heavy weight, I would say. Even the thought of that, how does that sit with you? Your shoulders kind of crept up into your ears there. Yeah, I mean, I think I hope that in Rookie and in my writing, I'm offering something. I don't know if I want it to be, I don't know, empowering sounds so idealistic to me. (laughs) But I do, you know, I do think knowledge is power. And I do hope that even if I'm kind of thinking on the page and I feel conflicted about something, it is clearing some kind of space in another person's brain to look at things a different way or to make connections in their own lives in order to, you know, make sense of their life. So I don't, I mean, I certainly don't think of myself as owing that to anyone, but I understand if, you know, I'm very grateful if my work does that for someone, but I don't kind of set out with that in mind because I think that actually would lead me to kind of condescend or coddle. I think that's what makes you a, a, a great role model because you don't set out to... Oh, thank you. ...to, to achieve that. Because I think also that what you're writing about now and what you've written about in the past, you know, might have kind of stemmed from and for teenage girls, but actually applies to a much wider audience and is completely relevant for, for my generation. And I wish there was a voice like yours when I was a teenager. But thankfully, there wasn't the internet, so there's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite happy there wasn't. You know, in terms of role models for you, who do you look to? Who do you who do you consider to kind of that you feel as a mentor? I mean, there are people I really admire just for their integrity. Writers like Sarah Schulman, Claudia Rankin, not mentors of mine personally, but just you know, or a musician like Joanna Newsom, who just you know goes away and does her thing and then emerges with something really special every few years. In my own life, you know, Hilton Owls, I've known for as long as I've lived in New York, like seven years. So he has been a really great writing mentor and is just so good at kind of (laughs) decoding my own weird feelings about what I'm working on. And Within Rookie, you know, we had our editors, we had our contributors. It was kind of just an ongoing exchange of ideas and support. And I really miss having that, you know. I miss having a place for all of that. Obviously, I still have a community and the Rookie community still exists, but it was really great to be able to, you know, get in a room every day or once a month, depending, and process the world and what we were all thinking about together. I think, I mean, having a network like that is so important. You have so many projects on the go, from acting on stage and screen, and now writing. How do you look after yourself, switch off, or find solace? If I can, I don't have email on my phone. I'm sort of like, unless I'm at my computer answering stuff, I'm not going to be looking at this and um, despairing over like things I have to do. don't really have Instagram on my phone unless I want to post stuff. You know, just trying to genuinely rest and get my attention span back and watch movies and TV without checking my phone or 
I mean, that can be kind of, you know, relaxing too, but just really trying to remember how it felt to come home from school and rest for like two hours before doing homework or something. I just want that feeling. I go on runs. I try to just listen to music and not do anything else. I try to read things that aren't related to what I'm working on. I I long to forget myself. I'm so happy movie theaters are open here and I've been able to see movies and remember what it's like to be in the dark with people, not able to check my phone. You know, it's also kind of like once what you love becomes your job, which is amazing and a, you know, one in a million kind of probability, then it's sort of about finding ways to, for me, make sure I still really love movies and plays and books and can take them in without thinking about my career or jealousy or um, things that stress me out. And like I have to sort of preserve that love because otherwise why am I doing this? Uh, I just need to preserve like the way that it felt to come home after school and work on my blog and stuff. Post-pandemic... Are there things that you've decided that you wanted to change or that you won't that you don't want to get back into patterns of that you were doing before? I think taking the alone time that I need and that I'm really built for, keeping up a sense of, you know, now that there are so many interesting things that happened over the last year and a half that I don't think could have happened, like in the theater community, for example, if um people were still going to work every day and felt you know, loyal to their employers or, you know, I'm talking about uh, conversations around racism in theater, uh, around workplace abuse. I really don't want to lose the feeling of like, just say it, you know, or this feeling of, okay, everything shut down. These institutions you were always told would always be there are crumbling. And in fact, perhaps not even providing the care to their communities that we hoped they would. So what do you care about um, and what is important to you? So I I don't want to lose the sense of community, actually, um, that comes with accountability and meaningful critique. But I think there's actually, you know, the whole next generation is coming up and I think that they are, you know, standing for change. They're, they're not afraid to have their voices heard, which feels you know, incredibly exciting considering the last few decades we've we've lived through. And, and to that point, I mean, who who are you inspired by from that generation? Who would you feel is your new trailblazer? All the young women on Gossip Girl, really, I am so blown away by. And every time I get to be on set with them, I am just so... And by the way, like, some of them are, like, my age. It's only because I play a teacher that I'm like, ah, the girls... <laughs> The kids. But, you know, some of that, like Whitney Peake is 18 and Emily Lind is 19. And I am just so pleased at how willing they are to speak their minds and have just an open dialogue about our show or our jobs or the show coming out or our industry. And But I think you did you did help pave the way for that, too. Oh, that's really nice. I mean, I I guess so. It's so weird, like, some of these... You know, micro-generational changes happen so quickly where it it really is, you know, when you talk about the younger generation standing up and having a much stronger sense of ethics <laughs> and just like the way this should all work, 
you know, I started doing theater in New York seven years ago, like not that long ago, but it's just so easy to be like, yeah, but this is kind of the way things have always worked and it sucks, but like it's a doggy dog world and <laughs> we all just have to kind of cope the best we can. So it's like really wonderful to be in an environment created by these amazing young women who are just kind of like, no, fuck that, or who are comfortable voicing opinions about our scripts or, or having questions or, or just wanting to kind of elevate it or make it more uh, real for themselves as actors um, or for the audience. So, yeah, that kind of blows me away. Of course, I think my career exists in some kind of lineage of that, but I feel like I'm really still learning all the time. Thank you very much, Tavi. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Enter the code the new guard at the checkout for 10% off your first Net-a-Porter order. T's and C's and exclusions apply. The New Guard was brought to you by Netaporte and Chalk and Blade, hosted by Kay Barron and produced by Laura Hyde. The team at Netaporte was led by senior editor Katie Barrington, with casting by Annabelle Brog and Olivia Wakefield. The executive producer at Chalk and Blade was Ruth Barnes, with original music by Alex Port Felix and engineering by Matt Nielsen. 